This was planned. Oh, all right. We're ready to go. All right. Great. Well, thank you for being here. There is a distinction between relaxation and rest. And if we wanted to relax, you could have woken up late, like lumbered into your, you know, had your comforter around you and just sipped on some smoothies or something like that. To relax is to stop working and to indulge in pleasure, but you guys have chosen to rest, which is different. Um, Augustine says that rest isn't just relaxation. He says in his prayer to God, our souls are restless until they rest in thee. What it means is removing the distractions of everyday life and centering oneself, opening oneself up to, up to the Lord. And so you guys have chosen to do that, even if it took some work to get here. So I thank you that you joined me for that. Uh, sermon title today is What Matters. Uh, you might be trying to figure out what major to choose, and you might think, man, that's what I need to do. I'm, I'm restless until I get that. Uh, you might be going through the days thinking that life is just happening. You need to get through the days. Someone's asking you what's going on, and you're like, oh, well, just, just life. Life is going on. Just kind of eking through, can't complain, I guess. So you might wonder what really matters. And what I hope to do today is to provide some perspective on that. And you might say, uh, you know, if I asked you what matters, you might say, well, Jesus, God matters, living a good life, family, uh, uh, friends, love. Those might be the answers, Um, but that might not really help. You might think, oh, well, I already knew that. But still, it just seems like the days are just going by. So I'm not going to list things for you that matter because I don't think that's going to help. What I'm going to do is to help provide a framework for thinking about what sorts of things matter so that you can discern it for yourself and that when other things come up and life seems monotonous or like it just goes on, then this provides some sort of perspective to see those things in a context. So here we go. Uh, The point of departure here is a passage where uh, Jesus is with his disciples and people are bringing children to Jesus. Um, I'm going to read this. And in, in all the synoptic gospels that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they contain this story, but each one contains a slightly different detail. So this is like a montage or a match, mashup so that we can get a complete picture of what's going on here. I picked the, the gospels that give uh, unique uh, details. So here we go. Starting with Matthew 10, 13. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples who were around him, his 12, rebuked the people. They said, stop it. Leave him alone. Give the man some space. Jesus called the disciples to him and he was indignant. He's pretty, pretty angry, probably used a biting tone here. He said, stop it. Let them come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't put anything in their way. For to them, they belong in my kingdom. Listen to me. The truly, as as Bob had said in previous sermons, truly means listen to me. I say to you, 
whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like them shall not enter it. Then he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. What does this have to do with what matters? I promise it's relevant. We'll see it as we go along. What do the children have that makes them able to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus didn't say, bring the Pharisees to me. Why not? Jesus didn't say, bring, you know, all the, all you disciples, you're the ones who should be coming to me. He said, bring the children. There's something special about the children that the Pharisees don't have and that the disciples don't have. Now, the Pharisees and the disciples, uh, there are things that characterize them. Pharisees were characterized by rigid rule adherence, having an idea about how religion ought to go. The same sort of thing is true of the disciples. The disciples thought, Jesus is our Messiah, which is true, but here's how this looks. He's going to lead an insurrection against the Romans, and we're going to have Israel on our own, unoccupied by Romans. So that was their idea. Children didn't really have that. But what, what is it exactly that Jesus is saying children have? Well, we know it's not rigid adherence to rules because children certainly don't do that. It's not re- having a really good prayer life. That's not what children have. It's not having amazingly true doctrinal beliefs and having deep insight into that. It's not even their running toward Jesus because they were being brought. So what is it that children have? What is Jesus telling us here? about children belonging to the kingdom. I'm going to give some insight into this passage through one of my favorite authors. And if you've heard sermons by me before, you've heard a quote from him, G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton says one thing that distinguishes children from adults is that children really love fairy tales. All right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about fairy tales. To adults... Uh, they don't listen to, they don't read fairy tales as much anymore, but children love them. Let's give some examples. Number one, Cinderella. I'm going to summarize four fairy tales for you. It's going to be a quick form just so you kind of see what's going on in these fairy tales. And I promise this is relevant to the point. Cinderella, some proud stepsisters force Cinderella to do some work. She labors at her work as they tell her to do, and she would miss the ball where where people get to see this prince. The fairy godmother shows up and turns a pumpkin into a coach, turns some mice into some some horses, uh, gives Cinderella this fantastic dress to give her the outward appearance that reflects her inward servant humble heart. She's given a rule, she must return by midnight. She takes the dress, she takes the coach, she goes to the ball, she meets the prince, she starts dancing with the prince. The prince, were, prince sees her beauty. They dance for a little while. She realizes it's, uh, it's midnight. She runs out. She turns into, uh, you know, the, the servant, looks like the servant, but she leaves behind a glass slipper, which the prince used then, uses then to identify her and finally sees this is the person who has the inward heart that reflects the outward beauty that I saw before. The proud will be laid low and the humble will be exalted. Beauty and the Beast. A prince and his court are cursed to be a beast and household items. Why? Because uh, this, this 
person shows up at the castle. The prince says, no, you can't have refuge here. Rejects her. She says, I'll give you this rose as a payment. He says, nope, you can't stay here. Uh, She gave a curse. So he turned into a beast. Uh, His court turned into uh, household objects. And uh, then Belle, the main character, her father happens upon this castle. uh, And the prince, uh, who's then a beast, says, no, you can't stay here. Same thing he said to the beggar before. His heart was unchanged. Um, He keeps uh, the father captive. Eventually, Belle offers a prisoner swap, basically. Keep me, not my father. Let my father go. Um, The father is allowed to go. Belle is there in the castle. She has the opportunity to leave the castle freely, and in some versions she does. Eventually returns and uh, tells the beast that she loves him. It turns out that turns over the spell. Everyone is returned back to normal. Love will, hard, will soften a hardened heart, and sometimes you must love someone before they're lovable. Modern day fairy tale, Lord of the Rings. A ring is forged that magically confers great power and invisibility to the person who bears it. Frodo, a fun-loving, gardening hobbit, happens upon the ring. His friend, a wizard, Gandalf, discovers that Frodo needs to take a trek across the known world in order to destroy this powerful ring in the lavas in a mountain in order uh, for uh, evil powers not to get their hand on it. Um, He is accompanied by his friend Sam and some other friends. And with the help of a wizard, a human, an elf, and a dwarf, they end up destroying the rings and returning safely. Evil can be conquered even in the most unlikely places. Another one, Harry Potter. Did you expect to see Daniel Radcliffe there? (laughs) Harry's mother's love for him. Harry was a wizard. Uh, He was attacked by, uh, as a baby, he was attacked by another wizard. And uh, his mother's love for him protected him from this attack and weakened this other wizard named Voldemort. Um, Harry uh, starts to live as a human, doesn't realize he's a wizard, eventually realizes that he is, discovers the wizarding world, um, gains, uh, or gains the ability over time to uh, fight Voldemort. So he does fight Voldemort and eventually vanquishes him with the help of his friends. Sacrificial love will conquer even the strongest powers. Okay, there we go. There's the summary. Uh, These have good morals, good moral stories, but uh, that's not what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus on what children see in the stories. They might garner the morals, but what what makes it so that children read them over and over again? It's not that they learn morals from them. Adults don't really read these because they're old news. Same way that a joke told two or three times becomes not funny anymore, so hearing the fairy tale over and over again makes it mundane or relevant. So it doesn't matter anymore. And why is this important? Here's why it's important. The world is a fairy tale, and you're in it. The stuff that happens in the world is magic. Uh, When a child hears the story of Cinderella, and the fairy godmother waves her wand. The child wonders, what's going to happen? It's directed at the pumpkin. What's going to happen? Oh, it turns into a coach. That's incredible. It's full of wonder. When a child sees flakes falling from the ground, they wonder, what is this? What's happening? 
they go outside to try to catch the flakes and see that it's gone once it hits their hand. They realize that it feels cold. They look and there's a, there's a collection of these things on the ground and they wonder what kind of shape does it make and they, they try to pack it together and throw it up and it feels cold, but that doesn't matter. The coldness, the pain from that is overcome by the wonder of what this sort of thing is. They're wondering at the world in the same way they wondered at what the coach was going to, or what the pumpkin was going to turn into in Cinderella. When they spill milk on the table, they think, oh, look, it makes a splotchy kind of shape, which is, if you think about it, surprising. I mean, you drop a petal in water, it makes a, you know, a, a circular shape, but you, you drop milk on a table and it makes a splotchy shape. This might be unexpected. And then they think, oh, well, can I do something about it? Push their finger into it. And uh, they say, oh, look, I can actually do something about it. I have agency over this. I have some power here to affect what this looks like. Now maybe I can do it like this. And adults think they're just messing stuff up. And the kids are like, look, I'm discovering. This is amazing. Kids have wonder to kind of have an openness to see what happens in the world. And in fact, if in this world, pumpkins were to turn into coaches, they wouldn't be any more surprised. They're just discovering what happens. And for them, it's all magic. For adults... We need newness in order to have any sort of pleasure. Uh, this was an insight by Epicurus, who thought that the world is all about pleasure. And what Epicurus thought is, in order to maximize your pleasure over time, you need to have something really mundane. Uh, if, if you indulge in pleasure, like you have a really extravagant meals, then all of your meals are going to eventually end up to be just be normal. You're going to be used to having extravagance, and you can only go downhill from there. So you need to establish a baseline, maybe eat some plain oatmeal for breakfast over and over again. And then even the, a little berry is going to seem like a spike in pleasure because it's new. We need to establish a baseline and what we need is newness. That's what we crave. How many bonuses from your employer does it take for you to start expecting it to be regular? The answer is two. Once you've got it two years in a row, you're going to start to think it's just going to keep happening. And if it doesn't happen, you're going to be disappointed rather than thinking, oh, this is a bonus every single time. There are rules in fairy tales. In Cinderella, you have to be home by midnight. Beauty and the Beast, one prisoner needs to be exchanged for the other. Not just going to let the dad go. Lord of the Rings, the ring makes people invisible and it can only be destroyed in one place. In Harry Potter, magic works only if the wand does. If the wand is broken, the magic isn't going to work as well. You're not, you know... When kids hear this, they think, oh, that's the rule. That's just the way it happens. Now, they might break the rule, but they accept that that's the way the rule is. Adults, they want to negotiate the rule. Fairy godmother says, be home by midnight. The adult's like, are you kidding? Midnight? That's not enough time. How about two? Can we, can we start at two? Fairy godmother, bibbity bobbity. Children accept that that's the way it is, and they go along with it. Here's, a, here's another way that children are. Children act just like the main character in these fairy tales. All right, so a, a child will, do, will act first. They don't count the costs. Here's what a child will do. Uh, hey, Dad, you want to hear a joke? Sure. They start the joke, and they don't know where they're going. They make it up on the spot. Hey, dad, want to see this dance? Sure, I'll watch. 
make up some sort of dance. They didn't practice. They're not thinking, oh man, what if, what if he doesn't like the joke? You know, I, I got to make sure it's worth giving a kind of good joke that he's going to laugh at. No, they're thinking, oh, okay, here, this is exciting to tell a joke. They're not thinking, I'm making him focus attention on this thing that I haven't even practiced. I need to make it worth his time. I got to practice. No, they're like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. And that's what the fairy tale uh, characters are like. Cinderella doesn't think, is it worth going to the ball? I mean, after all, it could be midnight and I don't keep track of time and I get transformed and everybody laughs at me and I'm worse off than I was. Doesn't even think about it. I can go to the ball? Yeah, I'm going. Does Harry Potter think, oh man, should I take on Voldemort? Well, look, I could take on Voldemort. I'll probably lose. That's a lot of suffering to lose. Here's something else I could do. I could relax and drink butterbeer until I lose too. Which one wins? He's not thinking about that. He's like, I got to take on Voldemort. He goes and does it. If our world is a fairy tale, how do we tell what kind of fairy tale it is? We've gotten a summary of these fairy tales and the sorts of ways that children see them and how they act. Let's talk about that. In every fairy tale, there's a status given to the main character. Cinderella was favored by the godmother. Frodo was chosen as the ring bearer, did not choose that for himself. It happened upon him and he was appointed the task. Harry Potter is a powerful wizard given powers by his mother that he did not have a choosing in. There's a task that's given to the main character that they didn't do something about. Cinderella, go to the ball. Belle, save her father. Frodo, destroy the ring. Harry Potter, stop Voldemort. In every story, there's some obstacles to completing the task. This is the conflict of the story. Cinderella has to wrestle with the fact that she has to be back by midnight. Belle has to love the heartless beast. Frodo has to stop people from trying to kill him and make the journey. People are after him. Harry Potter has some struggles with Snape in the Slytherin house. Obstacles along the task. All right. Well, what's ours? What's the status that's given to us? Here's the story. You are the prince or princess of the most high king. And you are sent to a foreign land. When you're sent to this foreign land, you have to discover your place in it. But you don't know that you're the prince or princess of the most high king. You don't discover that until later in the story. And then you know what your task is. Your task is to return home. You need to prepare for the return to your home where your citizenship is in the heavenly kingdom where you belong. And here we are in our foreign land, navigating our way through it. There are obstacles that ensnare us. What happened is that our king has left us in this foreign land some really good things to help us on our way to help us on our journey, as it were. And the character sometimes takes those good things and becomes enamored by them. And if you become enamored with these good things that our king has left us, then you become enslaved by them. And you forget about preparing. And the question in the story is, is that character going to be prepared for the return home? Or are they going to become ensnared by the other things? 
there wouldn't be a talk that I gave unless it had a chart. So here we go. One thing that our king gives us is other people, a community to acknowledge and recognize our efforts, to see what we're doing well. But, you know, we quickly realize that if other people acknowledge our efforts and what we're doing well, what they see is the stuff on the outside. And if we focus on that, we can try to pump up the things on the outside. How do we look in front of people? Not only by appearance, but also by signaling our virtue, even when it's not present. And if it is, we care more about how other people perceive it than how it actually is. And that's called vanity. There's a name for that. We are given a, you know, we're given a name for that. Here's another thing. We have a desire for completion. If we perform a task, like preparing for the kingdom, we really want to see it to completion. But we can take that desire for completion with a whole bunch of other things. We're trying to collect things and we want to see the collection complete. This is why people have butterfly collections and Pokemon card collections and try to get the very last one so they can have a complete collection. But we can also try to get money and wealth and we can see that number go up and think, oh, I'll get, I'll be, it'll be complete when it reaches this number. But the problem is that that always shifts and things are never complete and we always have partial of everything. So there's always some more completion we can have. The desire is never fulfilled. Here's another thing. We have a sense of justice and right and wrong. This is a good thing to lead us on our way. But what happens is when we perceive that a wrong has been done, we feel offense either for, for ourselves or on behalf of someone else. And the anger is what we use in order to try to get that in line. The problem is that there's going to be injustice everywhere. There's always something to criticize. Criticism is one of the easiest things one can do because there's always something that can be criticized. And again, if we use anger to try to push other people away from it, our anger is notoriously an, an untargeted, unspecific emotion. People become angry at whole swaths of things. They overgeneralize when they become angry. So if we become angry at what a person did, it can turn into anger at the person. And so anger pushes the person away. And then we can feel like there's some sort of injustice that that person isn't closer to us because we deserve it. And that leads to more anger. There's a name for that. It's wrath. We have a desire for improvement. One way to measure improvement is to compare ourselves to how other people are doing. This is competition. Competition itself is fine, but it can turn into envy. When we see other people are doing better than we are, we can become sad at our own state. And that's what envy is. And the problem is that there's always going to be someone who's better than us at something else. God created people with different skill sets at different things, some of which would apply better at other times than others. So there's always some sort of comparison that can be made that you fall short with respect to. You can't be good at everything. Another thing God has given us is the ability to rest. So uh, we can rest from our efforts, but the problem is that if we rest so much, our tasks don't get completed. And then when we go back to our tasks, it seems ominous and overwhelming. And so we can have a desire to rest because the, the task seems insurmountable and that's sloth. It's a sadness at the, at the present work that you have to do. And then there's physical enjoyments um, like food and drink and sex. And the physical, these physical enjoyments, if you give in to them, the problem is that the desire is going to get greater later on. Giving into them and indulging them doesn't just finish the desire and make things easier. It makes the desire flare up long-term, and so it further enslaves. Okay. It's important to note here, I want to say one more thing about these rules, that 
the things that you think are might might be rules. Don't be vain. Don't display sloth. Don't be wrathful. These sorts of things can seem like they're rules. They can seem like they're restrictions. It can seem like, look, I just want to live my life, and this is telling me things I can't do. In this fairy tale, those are not restrictions. They're instructions. Look, you've got a task. You've got to prepare for the kingdom. They're good things. And the instructions are, hey, don't be enslaved by that. Focus on your task. It's not like these are restrictions on the way of living your life unless you're already diverted from the task. If you're aimed at the task, you need to know how to do it. And that's what these things are. And they might seem like they're restrictions, but they're not. They're just telling you how to complete your task that you, the main character, have been given so that you can return home. So let us see the world as a fairy tale made by our creator. Let us accept how to complete the task and let us act first so that we might complete it. In this way, we can be like the children that Jesus said would enter his kingdom. I want to address an objection real quickly, or maybe not so quickly. We'll see how it goes. The objection is that children are gullible. They'll believe anything, right? If you, if you tell them, they'll even believe there's a Santa. Sorry about the spoiler if you're, if you're kids. Here's, a, here's an equal objection. Adults are too skeptical. So if you are a kid, you want to believe things, right? You're letting more things in and willing to believe it because you want to believe all the true things. And as a result, you might get some false things in there that you end up believing, If you're an adult, you might think, oh, you know, I've ended up believing false things. And so you might narrow the gate. I'm going to narrow the things that I'm willing to believe. I'm only going to believe the things that you can show me, only what you can demonstrate. But as a result, they're not believing true things that are given to them. Now the filter's too narrow. There are errors on both sides. Do you believe more true things and even be willing to believe some false things? You know, you don't know which ones are false, but believe some false things. Or do you become more skeptical and are, are excluding true things? You know, Jesus gave us this answer in the main passage for today. He tells you what to do. As a case study, let's look at Thomas, who seems to be doing a very adult, very reasonable thing. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Oh, some context, sorry. Uh, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He appeared to some disciples, but not all of them. Okay, and so this is, this is the scene of Thomas, whom Jesus did not appear to yet. He wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came, when he appeared to them. So the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. In other words, like he's alive. You know, you saw him die. He's alive. Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and the disciples are like, I see where you're going here. You need to see the nail marks in his hands. Thomas continues, and put my fingers where the nails were. Okay, Thomas, not enough to see the hands. You got to put your fingers where those nail marks are. And put my hand into his side. After all, a whole sword can fit there. Let, let me get my hand up in there. That's what Thomas is saying. I will not have faith. Pretty demanding. I need proof. 
I'm not even going to think this resurrection is a live possibility until I actually have proof. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Here, put your finger in here. See my hands? He got the seeing part down. He's telling Thomas, you can put your finger in there. Reach out your hand, put it up into my side. (laughs) Stop doubting and have faith. So he's saying, look, I'll give you all the proof you want. Thomas believed, my Lord and my God, he said. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have faith. But blessed are those who have not seen and have faith. Blessed are those who don't need to put their hands into my hands. fingers into my hand and hand into my side. Why did Jesus rebuke Thomas? He wasn't open enough. He didn't have the faith like a child. He didn't think it was possible. He's too narrow in his vision and he demanded proof. Jesus was not correcting Thomas for wanting to see his scars or put his hand in his side. He was correcting Thomas for not thinking that it was a a live possibility that he was resurrected before wanting to confirm. Have faith first, confirm later. Thomas wanted to confirm first and have faith later. When Jesus says, to to those who have ears, let them hear. What does he mean? He doesn't mean like, if you have physical ears, listen to me. He's not saying, hey, everyone around me, because you all have ears. He's He's not saying everyone around me, listen up. What he's saying is, you all have ears, I know that, but they're not really open. He's telling people to open up their eyes and ears like children do. Allow more things to be true. Don't have this narrow vision. Don't have, don't have the vision like the Pharisees where this is how it has to go. This is how I need to live my life. Don't have the vision like the disciples. Be like children. Open up and see what this world is like. This is why he says, for, these, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. So he's acknowledging that they have ears. They're just not hearing. They've closed off their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and I will heal them. As Bob has been preaching, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. What does this mean? Well, we have a lot of metaphors associated with light. My eyes lit up when I saw it. That's a light metaphor. That lit up my life. It's a light metaphor. Uh, that brightened my day. Another light metaphor. What does that mean? It means that now there's something that opens me up to new things that I hadn't seen before. Now I see things differently. Jesus, as the light of the world, is trying to get us to see things differently so that we can have ears to hear and eyes to see, so that we can be like children and see this world in a different kind of way. What would happen if we saw this world like a fairy tale where we were the prince or princess of the kingdom and we're a traveler in a foreign land trying to make our way through just trying to prepare for the kingdom? What would happen if we saw these rules, not as restrictions on how to live our life, but just instructions on the task given to us, the main character. And an an all-powerful God can certainly make it so that there are hundreds, thousands, millions 
of fairy tales happening at the same time. And you're the character, and you've got a different kind of obstacle than maybe other people do. What would happen if we acted first like the characters in these fairy tales? And you might think that this doesn't seem like uh, it's a super exciting fairy tale. But it didn't seem super exciting to Cinderella when she was scrubbing floors before her time came. It didn't seem super exciting to Harry Potter when he was at Aunt Petunia's house living like a human before he realized he was a member of the wizarding world. It didn't seem super exciting to Frodo, who was celebrating in the Shire until he was appointed with the task. But the goal, the task of the main character is to prepare, to prepare for the kingdom because it will come. And for us, it comes at death. When we exit this foreign land and enter a new one into the kingdom, This plot is given to us in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You're the holy most high God. Thy kingdom come. We're approaching the kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're preparing for your kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us on this earth to have more time to prepare. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Restore us from the way we've diverted. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Remove obstacles along the way so that we can better prepare. Our plot is given to us when we're told by Jesus how to pray. Jesus says that children see things that adults do not. Adults have sometimes closed off their vision to the world. And as a result, we miss out on what matters in this fairy tale that we call life. So let us too be like children so that we can enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Please illuminate our minds through you, the light of the world, by giving us the faith that you say children should have. Help us to do what Paul tells us to do in Philippians 3. Please help us to forget what lies behind. Please help us to reach forward to what lies ahead and to press on toward the goal of the prize of being in the divine kingdom. For our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await for when our bodies will transform into conformity with your body, and that we at long last can live happily ever after with you. Amen.